Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Aviel Ginsberg, a general partner at Founders Co-op and former managing director of the Alexa Accelerator. In 2010, Aviel co-founded Simply Measured, one of Founders Co-op's first investments, and was later backed by Bessemer Venture Partners, Trinity Ventures, and MHS Capital. When Simply Measured sold to Sprout Social at the end of 2017, Aviel transitioned into his current role as general partner. Aviel is one of the most intelligent, sincere, and colorful investors I know. Hi, Aviel. Where does this podcast find you? Seattle, Washington, on my sun deck. I'd love to start with your journey from time loop to Simply Measured. I heard it was also called Untitled Startup. Talk to us about the beginnings of your story as a founder. I've been writing software since I was a kid and was relatively entrepreneurial. I'm not really sure why I was, but I I was. My father was an artist. I didn't really have like an internal role model. None of my family. I didn't come from a family of starting businesses. It was be a doctor, go to Wall Street, be a lawyer. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. But I ended up moving out to to Seattle after realized it. I, I tried to initially start a startup with a friend after college realized very quickly that we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And rather than lose a whole bunch of friends and family money who were dumb enough to give us money at that time, because we pattern matched to those smart kids who were just, you know, dropping out of Harvard <laughs> and starting Facebook and other stuff. I was like, I, I should probably, you know, work, work at a company before, before I do this. So I moved out to Seattle and got a job as a software engineer. And you, you'd mentioned it should have been called Time Loop. It was Time Loop, which is a, a terrible name. But I, I got my first job and it really ended up being successful early stage startup in the healthcare space. And interestingly, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. But Time Loop was my my side project. I basically told the founders when I joined, like, I'm I'm not a career employee here. I'm here to work my ass off and learn how you get a startup off the ground. And when I feel like I know enough. I'm going to go and do it myself. And about six months into the journey there, um, I started with a side project, which was Timelope, which was a Firefox extension that tracked your browser history and streamed it out in real time. And you could create like all these different feeds. So think about like Twitter, how you could you know follow and there's a social graph. It was that for browsing history. So it was a little bit of a provocative idea because you know, sort of scared. It's like you're sh- so some people just use it privately. So they would be doing research and things like that. There was a lot of academic use cases where they wanted a highly searchable, and I did some low-level NLP on it to be able to, to pull out tags and things like that. And that ended up going nowhere and, in fact, ended up uh, blowing up in fantastic fashion. <laughs> in, in the U.S. election night, I got to reach out a large German uh, television station saying that they were going to use okay. my product to have their anchors live cast the streaming of the U.S. websites that they were using to report on the U.S. election. And I was way too overconfident in my ability to scale software back then. And it took the it took my server down. And once it was clear that Obama had won the election, I was living in Cap Hill in Seattle at the time. And all of these giant, like joyful marches and rallies broke out outside. And I'm there trying to stand the server back up for some folks in Germany I've never met. And I just put the laptop screen down and went out to the march and was like, <laughs> fuck it. Um, but, but at any rate, you know, that, that aside, I, I knew I always wanted to start a company. The company I was working at was fantastic, ended up selling for 
you know, nine-figure nine sum. It was an enterprise marketing management software for pharma and healthcare. So I started my career working in MarTech with a little bit of a HIPAA angle. But so I was fascinated by MarTech and social media. And that was really the bug for me of like, I'm interested in this general area, but I know I want to start a company. So, you know, a little bit of, of Time Elope was exploring aspects of social sharing and, and early Twitter. But ultimately, I realized from that first job that uh, while I have a lot of great consumer ideas, what's actually registers for me and works in my brain is selling software that solves a business problem. Like start with problems and work backwards from there rather than what's what's something that's super cool that should exist and let's bang on this and see where this goes. And so I, I at that point knew that I wanted to do something in that world. We had just raised at, at that company Aperture uh, a really successful Series A and, and then it was time to specialize, right? As a company grows, it was awesome when I started. It was like, you're going to write code. You're going to be a product manager. You're going to talk to customers. I think I was the, the third hire. It was a fantastic way to start your career. And, and by the way, what did you enjoy most at that point? I enjoyed literally wearing every single hat. Like I, I got to interact with everyone in the company. You know, the, the, the CEO wasn't the CEO. He was, he was a buddy. You know, uh, we, I could work on everything. I could have my hands in everything. And I could make a real meaningful impact. I mean, I, I was working on features and functionality that had seven, eight-figure impacts on Medtronic, Abbott Health. Like, it was awesome to be able to have that impact with my hands on my keyboard with software. That is really what I fell in love with. But what I didn't really love was myopically focusing on, like, how do I become the best back-end software engineer in the world, the best product manager in the world? I, I, was, I was always much more of a generalist, so I knew I wanted to start a company out of it. So when the time came that it was like, okay, now it's time to specialize because we're about to become a big company, I was like, okay, guys, it's, it's time for me to, to head out. So I took my learnings from Timealope. I took my learnings from Aperture. The only thing I didn't actually have was an idea. I knew that there was an opportunity to do something with social and marketing because the marketing landscape and PR landscape was changing. So along with my best friend, we incorporated as Untitled Startup. I still own untitledstartup.com. <laughs> and we managed to raise... Uh, 250K from a really crazy venture firm who was willing to write a check to two guys with no idea. The name of that venture firm was Founders Co-op. That's where I'm now currently a partner. Quick sip of tea because I'm talking a lot and my mouth is getting dry. And so we, we actually started our first product was a crowdsourcing platform to take ideas from our audience, which I'll talk about in a second, and validate those ideas and then build them. So our, our initial plan for how we were going to build an audience was we actually essentially live casted the building of our company. We put out 60 to 120 second edited daily videos of what we were working on, what we were learning. And you, some of those are still online if you search for like untitled startup videos. And they're really embarrassing because I had no idea what the hell I was doing, though I did have a lot more hair. And through that, we actually built a pretty loyal audience and, and got some initial traction and what seemed like some interesting ideas that were all sort of within the, the social marketing uh, space. And then it came, you know, about two months into that, my, my co-founder and I realized, you know, this is a lot of fun, but we haven't really accomplished anything. So we said, let's pick one of the ideas and let's build an MVP of it over the weekend, ship it and charge for it. Because that's, that's what we're good at. It's like, if someone's willing to pay money for it, it's a real idea. We spent two months with a bunch of things that people said are cool, but nobody's given us a single dollar. So we went through the ideas that we had. We ended up not liking any of them. My co-founder had an idea. It was like, you know, let, let's ask Twitter. And so we started asking Twitter and we started getting a bunch of ideas. We're like, wow, we're getting a lot of ideas fast. And he's like, let me automate this. So he wrote a quick script, which used the just released Twitter streaming API to stream all responses to our tweet into a spreadsheet. I said, holy shit, man, we should just make this as the product. So in 
72 hours, essentially, we built without sleep and way too much wine and beer. It was some terrible code. Uh, we shipped a product called Rowfeeder where you could pick a keyword on Twitter and it would stream all the results into a spreadsheet, which right now sounds stupid. At that time, it was an extremely novel idea. And we had our first paying customers that Monday. Um, and that actually ended up being the core of what turned into a enterprise social media offering, which turned into a really large company. And I, I know you've got some questions to dig into to all of that, but that was sort of the, the beginning. As, as you, as I, I hope the takeaway from this should be like, I think a lot of people have the desire and motivation as they go through their career and become quote unquote successful to rewrite history and make it seem like they had a plan, they knew what they were doing. I was just doing shit. And because it was exciting for me, I couldn't do anything but build. And I was so attracted to the idea of being able to solve other people's problems with software that I didn't really even care what those problems were and wound up there. There was not a master plan. Wow, that's a really crazy story and a great one. Um, were there any key turning points in your company growth that you would say changed everything? Yeah, I'd say there were a couple. The, the first was the product row feeder turned into Simply Measured, and there were two moments that led to that change. The first was, you know, we, we were chugging along. We got to about, call it 5K in monthly recurring revenue. You know, we're high-fiving me, me and we added a third co-founder. We're all paying ourselves $36,000 a year. We're like, <laughs> we're on the road to ramen profitability. Like, you know, this, this is great. And our servers went down suddenly, and we had no idea why. And we're like, oh, some idiot tracked the term BlackBerry. And this is back when Blackberries were a thing. Um, and that was actually a lot of Twitter was people on their Blackberry Messenger doing these weird Blackberry Messenger hashtag chats, whatever. So we shut down the keyword, reach out to the person and discover it's the personal address of the head of digital marketing at Blackberry. Oh. <laughs> and he's like, why did you shut that off? And we're like, you're paying us like $50 a month. And he's like, how, how much do I need to pay you? And we're like, oh, shit, wait, what, what's going on here? Um, so we really quickly realized that we actually had a bunch of these enterprise customers who were valuing the product that we were delivering at, you know, 10, 100, even a thousand X more than what we were offering. But they also had their own requirements in terms of, you know, extra enterprise functionality in terms of user management, account management permissions and some extra customizations. And so that was a light bulb moment for us to say, maybe we can turn this into an actual enterprise business. And so we, we started investigating that and started closing some of our first enterprise accounts. We still had the name Rowfeeder at the time. We took Rowfeeder to about 25K in MRR and, you know, kept growing it. And this was, I was on the East Coast Thanksgiving. I was admittedly a little mm -hmm. drunk because it was Thanksgiving. I got a phone call. I pick it up. I probably shouldn't have picked it up. And it was the procurement department of a Fortune 100 company asking what the hell this invoice for $36,000 was to untitled startup. And so that was, I did not nail that call, but we didn't lose them as customers. And we very quickly decided that if we're really going to go this direction, we need to go all in. We rebranded the company to Simply Measure, changed the name from untitled startup and decided to go, you know, a full on um, enterprise route and enterprise direction. So that, that was a super critical moment where we didn't pivot the business, but we pivoted our customer. Mm -hmm. We went from, you know, self-serve low touch SMB to our target is the enterprise, um, and made that transition over time. And in fact, our customer base, besides just going from SMB to enterprise also transitioned from about 90% agency when we started to 10% agency when we sold the company. There's a bunch of moments that all add up over time, but I think one that's worth calling out was when we raised our series C of funding, we were call it like a 
55, 60 person, I think like 60 person company making almost $10 million a year, borderline profitable, growing. We had, you know, early stage acquisition mm -hmm. offers in the, you know, close to $100 million range. You know, we were totally on top of the world. And me and my co-founders all got together and it was like, okay, what do we do here? And we weren't all aligned in terms of where we wanted to take the business. Did we aspire to build a public company to become super rich and sell the business for a billion dollars? This is before the term unicorn, I think, was even minted. And we ended up making the decision to raise capital and try and grow as big and fast as we, we can. And you know, the way that I phrased it in our founder conversation was, okay, let's get weird with it. And what did I mean by like, let's get weird with it is I, I think there's many opportunities in your life to make a lot of money, to find yourself in, you know, positions of influence and power, but you can't control finding yourself in a perfect moment of serendipity. And what I mean there is for the company that we were building, we have the strong tailwinds of big data and the rise of social. We had the venture community in love with this general concept. And we were three inexperienced 20 year olds who were about to be given the opportunity to turn into, you know, several hundred person organization to accelerate our careers and learn stuff firsthand, experience stuff firsthand that most people never get the opportunity to do. And so we made that bet. And I think why that was a pivotal moment in the company was that it was actually the wrong bet. What was happening in the social media space was way too many companies were getting funded. The barrier to entry was going down, down, down. Facebook was consolidating everyone. Twitter was changing the way they did business. And our opportunity was actually getting smaller just as we were raising money for it to get larger. But that being said, I don't regret the decision whatsoever. It still worked out well financially, but most importantly, the lessons that we learned there are the things that make me able to do my career today because I've experienced what high growth looks like, what the challenges of scaling a SaaS model look like, what the challenges of building a team, of building a large engineering organization. But I would say those were the two pivotal moments in the career in, in the company. You talked about the learnings from the process of running your company, but could you tell us more about the specific learnings that enabled you to scale your product? I would say the core thing that should have been obvious but wasn't at the start is that your product and thus your company is an emergent property of the people in your organization and the relationships between them. I think a lot of people spend too much time thinking about what's the ideal solution rather than what's the ideal solution that we can build, right? Because um, you, you have your limitations. Over time, you start having your technical debt. You have your architecture. You have people with different skill sets. And as you're going through that, that high growth phase, I think the analogy I probably used way too much is I think there's sort of, if you view the world as black and white, there's two different modes of operating. One is, these are the people that are on the bus, all right? Now, where do we take the bus? Then there's the other of like, we want to get to this destination, so who do we put on the bus? And I, I think scaling a high growth company is neither. You are simultaneously doing some things the wrong way, some things the right way. You're trying to find where's your low hanging fruit that can help you continue to grow and close the next customer while simultaneously investing in the thing that's going to matter a year from now or two years from now. And the amount of dissonance that that takes is absolutely brutal. And I think ultimately to be successful through it, what you have to do as a leader is you have to be an amazing storyteller. You need to get your entire company to rally around a specific direction and not focus on this thing in front of them that sucks, not complain about how come this person gets to do that and I have to do that? How come I'm working on the shitty product that nobody really cares about? 
And dealing with all those things is is outrageously hard. And I'm not going to pretend that I became an expert at how to solve it, but I certainly became an expert at living with it and understanding what a lot of these challenges look like. And and I think the advice that I always give founders is shit's going to be broken and shit's going to get harder. And you may enter into to a high growth stage thinking that what your job is, is whack-a-mole to get everything into stasis, everything into stasis. But the reality is that you will always be out of stasis. The second you have something figured out, there's a new problem that you're going to have to solve. And if you think that there's a break where you're like, well, once we get over that hurdle, it'll get easier, it'll get easier. But when you sort of embrace that your problems will get harder, the challenges will get harder, and it's not your job to fix it, it's your job to continue building momentum and let all the problems wash through you and just focus on how do we keep accelerating? How do we keep accelerating? It's sort of a, a freeing thing. And I honestly think that that I, I found that near the end of the journey, but I wish that was something that I, I understood earlier on. Mm-hmm. And in this podcast, we're trying to uncover some of the mysteries behind different company stages. Could you talk to us about the metrics you had right before selling Simply Measured? Yeah, right before selling Simply Measured, we, I mean, it's, it's a complicated thing. We had about 22, when we saw we had 22 million in ARR, I think at our peak, that was lower than our peak. I think our peak ARR was closer to about 24. We ran into a challenge where we grew very quickly through about 12 million in ARR and started to slow because we were getting hit pretty aggressively by churn. So by the time that we sold the business, call it like around 20-ish million in revenue, where the sales team was adding in about 100K in monthly recurring revenue, or uh, not 100K, what would that have been at that time? Got the math and stuff. Yeah, sorry. The sales team's adding like a million in monthly recurring okay. revenue and the, the and, and you're churning out a million. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was brutal at that point. And what was the story behind the acquisition? Yeah, so we sold the company, we didn't get bought. There were moments in time that we could have sold it, but what happened was, so Facebook consolidated part of, of the space, which I think you know lessened some of the opportunities, but the big thing that had us sell was part of our business was built on top of Twitter. And so we paid Twitter for access to use their data. I think at our peak, we were paying Twitter about six or $700,000 a year for the data that we were using in our analytics and, and delivering through customers. They were trying to build their data business out because they were struggling in public markets and they decided to abruptly change their strategy. And their strategy was for those larger customers, you can no longer buy data from us. You have to enter a partnership into us and you get all the data you want and you need to do a 20% top line revenue share with us. For us, that broke our financial model as a business because you know it sort of turns you from a SaaS company into, I would say, not great gross margins, going from like seventy-two percent because we were we still had a bunch of services to to suddenly a fifty percent margin business, and that's not awesome. And so we saw the writing on the wall, so we started thinking who who were the right partners for us that had you know either the engagement part of social or were larger marketing suites. And we had always been close with Sprout Social and the way that their business model worked is they were capable of entering into that arrangement with Twitter. And so they were able to enter into that arrangement with Twitter. They were super weak in social analytics. So we were sort of a, a peanut butter and jelly situation for them to, to layer it in. And so, you know, in the end, I think it worked out, but it certainly, we didn't get bought. We had to figure out who was the right home for us and start a process because we had this 
existential shift in our business model. And I think a takeaway that I always share with founders now is you have to be really careful when you're built on top of other platforms because you only have a temporary alliance with them in terms of your incentives. One day their incentives can change. And if that causes an existential threat to your business, it doesn't matter how successful you were to date. You're suddenly in a lot of fucking trouble. (laughs) Is that one of your key takeaways from running your company? I'd say there's a couple takeaways that I have there. One is that it can be awesome to build on top of other platforms because it's such an accelerant to the types of problems you can solve. But be very careful. Are you building on top of a platform or are you building part of where the platform is going? And that's a really tricky line, especially if you're working in cloud infrastructure. Like, are you building part of AWS or are you building on top of AWS? This is me with my founder hat versus my VC hat. VCs, to make our model work, we need your company to be as big as fucking possible. We need billion-dollar outcomes. But businesses have local maximums. There are certain moments in your life where it's not a linear path. Like You see these moments of like like raise round at this valuation, raise round at this valuation, raise round at this valuation. But there are various moments for exits inside, and it looks more like this. There is a strategic opportunity here. And so there's lots of these local maximums that I think investors have trained founders to feel ashamed of being interested in, where there can be moments where you should sell your business early because it's more valuable today than it will be for the next three years. And there's a lot of risk that could happen in those three years. And I think waking up and thinking about those opportunities. um, And then I'd say lastly, just being really smart about keeping product market fit. That was one of the challenges we had as a company is that we found it and we grew so fast that it masked a lot of our problems in terms of keeping our competitive advantage and building a lot of our internal scalable systems. Like we lost product market fit and we underinvested in systems because when numbers are always up and to the right, nobody really, it's too easy to celebrate versus be overly critical. And so I tend to find that one of my jobs now as an investor is, you know, yes, of course, be a cheerleader, celebrate with the founders, but, but sometimes it's good to be that asshole to be like, okay, celebrate but what now? Like, why did it not go better? I know you beat plan, but why didn't you beat plan by more? And how do you do that? (laughs) You're a great coach of Yale. And was there any other um, idea that was tempting you to start a new company after your exit? It's it's a great question. So, I mean, I had mentioned why I left my previous job to start a company. It was because of specialization. I mean, one thing that I found in, in building Simply Measured was that I love the early stage, the zero to one, the like trying to figure out, should this product exist? And then once you find out that it should exist, figure out, can it, like, is there a way to build it? And like, I love those problems. The problems of being a fantastic manager of manager of of some of the operational organizational strategies of of, of running and building a large organization. I just didn't love like, and, and I know myself well enough to know that like when I should have been reading business books, I was instead helping my friends who were building early stage companies. I was helping founders co-ops source deals and due diligence. I didn't even get to the point of another idea was because I know that if I'm successful, which I want to believe that I would be, I'd make myself miserable and I wouldn't be a great leader. And so I think the way that some founders solve this is they start studios or things like that. My way of solving this is, is to, to be a VC and be able to be part of a lot of those journeys in the early stage. Yeah, you're right. Startup studios are getting super popular these days. It's interesting. Like, I think startup studios solve an interesting piece. So, like, I definitely am in the side of, 
I love the early stage of building a company. Then there's a lot of great entrepreneurs like, I fucking hate the early stage of building a company. And what a studio does is you have the folks who love the early stage are the studio. And then they find the later stage people who don't want to join a company until it's found product market fit. And they bring them into the studio. And that's what that ends up looking like. So I think there's a reason why those exist. It's a really interesting space right now. But let us change our topic to an even more important one. Everybody knows that you're a committed and proud dad. Have you observed any parallels between being a dad and a founder? And and what is harder? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I would say there's certainly a lot of parallels. I mean, maybe the way to start it for me, though, I may have had a slightly different Parenthood did an unexpected thing to me initially. For me, I would prioritize, even though I was married, it was sort of company and then my wife. And then I don't know where I was because I, I wasn't even on the list because my I was so wrapped up in the identity of company that like I didn't even show up on the list. Suddenly this kid exists and it's like kids number one. I'm like, oh, and then company's number two? Like what? No, wait, company's <laughs> number three because kid needs my wife. And then wait, but it's not actually company number three, because I need to be engaged in my kid. And it's like, okay, so it's kid, wife, me, company. And that was like a real mind fuck for for me. Um, Like in terms of where was I spending my time being frustrated? Like usually it'd be, I'd want to pour myself into work, but I'd find myself pouring myself into work, being frustrated that I was being taken away for my kid and then being with my kid and then simultaneously being frustrated that I was taken away from work. So like I had all of these like unhealthy things, but what it taught me was I think to your question, it's super similar. If you're healthy about it, it helped teach me that like I was a very unhealthy entrepreneur and that I had no boundaries. I would put success of the business and everything over my personal relationships, my health, my everything. And suddenly having a child, it broke through all of those boundaries. And what I now know great leaders actually look like is they can separate themselves from the company. They know that part of their company is always going to be broken. They do high leverage activities to figure out how do I engage in ways that can have the greatest impact, not spend my time obsessing and firefighting throughout the whole thing. And the most important lesson, which I think is very much like being a parent, especially as your kid grows older, you can't fucking control everything. In fact, you can control very little. Like your kid is going to grow up into their own person. You can influence, but you have to let them make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, grow and learn. And I think that's a hard thing for entrepreneurs to transition from when you're the original founder and you've built all of it. Is that transition, just like as a kid grows up, to be like, it's your kid, not in terms of that you made it. It's your kid in terms of that it's something that looks like you, that you have your own satisfaction, pride and joy wrapped up into but you no longer have control over because it's its own autonomous thing that if it doesn't learn to live, breathe, be successful on its own, doesn't fucking matter. You can't hero your way through that. So I think for me, it was a very cathartic process in figuring out what like a healthy relationship looks like. So for me, that's been a journey because I did not, I did not grow up in a family with boundaries. I poured myself into a startup with no boundaries and, and now it's, it's a thing that I'm still learning. And what kind of tech is best for kids? How to make it have a positive impact on their development and future life? Yeah, so my kid's four and a half. And like candidly, we have been on the far end of the spectrum of no tech, no screens. So we we do like 
a movie on Sundays and a short show on Saturdays, no iPads, no, like I'm way on that end of the spectrum. It's kind of amazing how imagination grows without that. However, what we do have a lot of, which should be no surprise is that we have like 14 Alexa devices in the house. And I'd say that's the winner. And in fact, like, I think that helped encourage my daughter to build language early because it was a great way for her. Like the more that she could talk and communicate, the more she could interact, the more information. So I I think here's the best thing is like, get a bunch of books on audible and give your child the ability before they can read to have access to a massive library of awesome books and awesome stories that they have control over and can listen to. So I have no problem if my kid wants to spend two hours in a room just listening to Jack and Annie stories. I have a problem if it's going to be two hours on an iPad. You know the difference between two hours on an iPad and it's like, now let's go for a walk. Good fucking luck getting the (laughs) iPad away from the kid. The kid's all shaky, distracted, total fucking chaos. Here it's like, oh yeah, cool, let's Mm -hmm. go do that. There was a lot of promise to voice that wasn't delivered. Voice for kids is, I I think, especially for young kids, once they've developed language, depending on your kid's age, so call it two and a half through six or seven, is just magnificent. Highly recommend. I don't have kids yet, but I think that I'm also addicted to Alexa. I have like six devices. Oh, you need more. (laughs) My fiancé is making jokes about the fact that I'm saying more frequently Alexa than Anna, that is her name. (laughs) (laughs) And so once talking about Alexa, let's talk about voice AI interfaces. You let the Alexa accelerator and seen a lot of companies building things with the primary usage of voice interface. Um, What needs to happen on the market to make voice the most popular interface? I honestly don't think it's the market. I mean, I'm obviously like, I've been inside like the dragon's mm-hmm. mouth. Like, so I, I think maybe I'm a little jaded, but here, here's my opinion. I think starting out, I thought that, and I think I've given you this, this spiel before I would share yeah. for the audience, like that voice was the next mobile. And I, what I've come to realize is no voice is the next multi-touch. It's not the next mobile. It's, mm-hmm. it's a part of a, of an experience. Um, and I think candidly more so than challenges with the market, there's challenges with the technology. Why does Alexa work? It's because look like ASR. So, you know, speech recognition going from me saying these words to text got good enough, but natural language understanding to really understand in a complicated fashion, what the hell did I mean Mm. was not where it needed to be when these products tried to go above and beyond. And I think there's open questions too, about adult humans inability to maintain so much context in their heads without social interaction. I found it's easier for kids to maintain state in an application than it is for me and for adults. Like I'm playing off right now your facial expressions to tell me how you're reacting, how you feel. Kids don't necessarily have all of those skills yet. So they're a little bit more malleable in terms of being able to engage with a, you know, whatever. It started as a cylinder, now it's a Mm -hmm. circle with whatever, a globe, whatever. So I think like really it's about finding the right limits. Like what are the good use cases for voice? And I think they're mostly command and control, not deeply engaged conversation. So I'd say command and control and accessibility. And I think like as folks focus more on that and layer it into other experiences, like why does every screen experience not also come with a voice experience? Like I think that's what this looks like. Voice is part of it, but it's not its own standalone. And candidly, like you look at, the companies through the accelerator and none of the voice first companies have been massively successful. Some of them have had limited success, but the big successes from the programs 
have been companies that are either like supporting infrastructure, like Comet ML from year one is a you know cloud-based meta machine learning platform for model management and experiment management. Yesterday we had the launch of AnyCart, which is you know online grocery shopping. Like, and all of those had angles, but like none of the companies that were pure voice experiences have have really broke out. And I think it's it's just because they're not gonna. Like, I don't know that unless you're going after kids, unless you're leaning into command and control and accessibility, like, I just, I don't know that from a, like, I'm building an experience that's purely voice that there's a there there. Yeah, I just fully agree with that. It's also one of my personal lessons learned from my last company that Alexa works best when it's part of a larger ecosystem and when it's like, you know, a puzzle fitting a larger jigsaw. It doesn't really make sense, at least for now, to create products working like only on Alexa and, and nothing else. But let us get to the next question. Are there any particular traits of the most successful teams you've observed at your accelerator? Yeah, accelerator specifically, I think the most successful teams are what I would call a complete team. So on your team, you have enough sort of sales, marketing, engineering strategy product to be able to execute in a self-contained fashion because every company in accelerator you pivot you may end up in a similar place to where you started but there's a swing in like well, i'm going left i'm going right i'm going left i'm going right to the comment earlier like you are limited in what you can do by the people that you have and i think if you don't have enough surface area to be able to explore where interesting early stage opportunities are you just aren't as successful because there's not enough surface area for serendipity the early stage what it is about is finding the right path how do you generate your initial momentum and you need a sort of pragmatic and capable team to do that. And so, you know, maybe another way of saying it is strong opinions loosely held as well. The companies that can like act with conviction, but also aren't going to spend three days needing to talk themselves out of something that they should know in 30 seconds is now fucking wrong. But they just can't do it because they have too much of their own emotion and sense of self worth wrapped up in proving that it's right. Like there's definitely this like, this trope that the best entrepreneurs are stubborn. I don't agree with that. I think the best entrepreneurs have conviction, but there's a big difference between having conviction and being stubborn. Let's now pivot to you as an investor. You worked with Founders Co-op for a really long time as a founder. Then you became a venture partner in 2017, and now yep. you're a general partner. So you're actually right now sitting 100% on the other side of the table. It's a really interesting journey. What is the key difference between skills needed to be a good operator versus a good investor? I mean, in my experience, for, for operator versus investor, I think it's is depth versus breadth. Like my job here is to be a great pattern matcher across many different things, know the right time to ask questions. On some levels, that's great. That, that's that's an, an analog to being a great leader inside of an organization. But I think even more so here, like, you just need to go so broad as an investor to help founders see around corners. And you don't need to have the answers. I think as an operator, you need to be great at the tactics. Here, it's being great at the questions and, and being broad. You also have to have so much more patience. Like I think having too much patience as an operator will kill you because patience can look like it means you're moving too slow. Like you always need to feel like somebody's going to eat your lunch, like you're moving too slowly, that this needs to be shipped yesterday. But as an investor, you just have to have more patience because you don't have enough context to really understand why things are happening the way that they are. 
And I think more investors without patience can do more, more harm than they can do good because they're sort of projecting their own biases and forcing a company to operate in ways that may be unnatural. But for me, the transition from founder to operator, the thing I, I'm sorry, for founder and operator to investor that I had to deal with was realizing that I wasn't the person running the company. And so when I'm thinking about what's a great idea, what's a great opportunity, I shouldn't be evaluating it in terms of if I was in the CEO's shoes, because I'm not. I'm not going to be there for all of his or her decisions. I'm, it's not my choice what direction the company is taken in. And I think some of my first investments, and, and really I, I started being a venture partner in 2015, though not officially. And so I was part of some investments then. And the first couple I made were pretty shitty. And like some of them were, I look and there's billion dollar businesses that do the same things. But I was imagining myself being the operator, not, not that founder. I think there's a great line, I forget who said it, which is, you sort of get to make two decisions as an investor to invest and to fire the CEO. Everything else is influence. <laughs> and what is your primary source of information about the market? Like, how deeply do you have to understand a given vertical? Why don't I work backwards? I don't need to understand the vertical. I invest in founders first. Some of the best investments I've been part of have been in, in areas that I knew jack shit about when I initially invested. But what I knew was that the founder, like the founder should know a lot more than I know. It's that the founder knows more than I do and I know how I can help. So I won't invest if I just, I can't engage. Like there's certain businesses where I'm like, I don't know how to help you at all. I don't need to have the expertise to say, I know that this business will be successful. But I can say, like, you're going to run into these challenges, whether in scaling the team, in shipping the product, in recruiting, in your business model, in sales. And like, if I can help there, that's enough for me to engage. And there's nothing more awesome than learning about a new space from an extremely talented founder. And so really what I look at is, is this founding team capable of building a big business. So what I'm looking at in the opportunity is, is it large enough? Like that needs to happen. I don't need to know that like their strategy will win, but like, is it a large enough opportunity? Then is the team complete, which I talked about earlier in terms of, you know, the worst thing is when somebody's like, we're building a, you know, machine learning, blah, blah, blah. It's like, so who does machine learning? We're going to hire that person with the money. It's like, okay, I, this is, let's goodbye. I love founders who are great storytellers because storytelling helps you recruit employees. It helps you close deals. It helps you raise money and it helps you create cognitive distortion fields to get people to focus on the right things and create momentum. But there's a big difference between, you know, great storytellers, charismatic founders and, you know, sociopathic founders. So I also try to identify who are those founders that welcome critical feedback that can spend their whole day telling this big, unbelievable vision to recruit people and then go to sleep at night knowing that they need to figure shit out and they're fucking terrified. And they're willing to tell me they're terrified and yet still go back the next day and close a seven-figure deal. That ultimately is the thing that I look for the most is when I find those people, I run as quickly as possible to give them as much money as possible when I know that I can help them. So you told me about the good features and what are the bad ones? What do you classify as a typical red flag? Yeah, I'd say red flags would be not treating engineering and software as a first-class citizen, viewing it as a tool to solve a problem rather than a partner at the table. Because I think the best companies partner, like you may say, here's this initial problem, we just need to write some code to fix it. But you need to have that technical leader at the table 
to help find the opportunities. What's the best solution? And so a red flag for me is always you treat software as a as a tool. And so that's usually founders who are like, I don't need a technical co-founder. Always having an answer and being way too confident is is concerning. Like I want to know your neuroses because I want to make sure that I can help you. Because I've had those situations where founders just try to sell me too much. And our relationship, our like board meetings are them just trying to convince me that everything's okay. That's useless. So I look for that. I think I mentioned before how you what what's good, but I, I definitely have gotten close to some sociopaths in the past. And that that is a that's a scary thing to to be part of. And it makes you feel like you're losing your mind as well when you're working with one. Do not recommend. Let's let's see other patterns. I really struggle with these answers because I've been part of Techstars selection, Techstars Seattle selection since 2011. That's well over 100 companies that have run their full life cycle. I have been part of every Founders Co-op deal starting in FC3. So through Founders Co-op, I've been part of another, let's call it 70 deals, done about 10 angel investments. So I've looked at about 180 companies over a long period of time that, and not just looked at, like done those deals, seen under the hood, know what's happening. And I find that what's happening in my brain is more of a system one function than system two, if you've ever read Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Like it is not this like analyst. If you ask, like all, we all have to write our investment memos, but I often find my investment memo is me trying to justify what my gut has told me because that machine of pattern recognition that I have is amazing. Um, and I'm lucky to have it, especially for somebody who is only formally so, so new to this industry, but really I've been doing it since 2011. Like I remember grilling remitly in their interview who, you know, are, there's rumors now they're going to go public at at least a $5 billion valuation. And, you know, getting to, to watch that from their Techstars interview to now and all the in-between, like those are invaluable things. And I think it's, it's really hard to come up with these hard and fast rules of like, not this, yes, this, not this, because as I look at every company, there's some elements of the bad things, some elements of the good things. Like ultimately the only things that are consistent is that none of the companies that have been successful have run out of money. And you know, that it's a hard thing. Let's shift gears and let's talk now about healthcare. Yeah, um, sure. What are the learnings from investments like Galileo Health and Bravecare? What are you looking for when it comes to healthcare at your fund? Sure. So my partner is closest with Galileo, so talk about that a little bit. But I've been the closest with Bravecare. I think, look, but we're not healthcare specialists. And you know, as I mentioned at the start of this, I did start my career in healthcare, but it was at a software company selling into the healthcare industry. And I think the way that that I approach healthcare opportunities is not that I'm going to be the. And, and by the way, we also invested in CSATs, which was a UW spinout that sold it to Johnson and Johnson, which was an incredibly good outcome for us. I'm not an expert in the science. I'm not a doctor. I know there's great opportunities there in terms of how we improve critical care through the science, but I'm not smart enough to do those deals. What we look at is in the same way that we have watched other industries and businesses digify their activities, digify word, digitalize, whatever, it is healthcare's moment now. Enough of the groundwork has been done that you can actually change the process of care through better workflows, through better data. And so those are the types of opportunities we look at. With Galileo, it's super obvious that there's tons of opportunities in innovations on the insurance model plus the telehealth model. So for us, we were fascinated by like, it's a giant market and you can use software and data to dramatically reduce a lot of the, the, the friction and costs. 
for Brave Care, exact same thing. Like, why is there not better urgent and primary care for kids? And I experienced this firsthand. I was like, this actually sucks. I'm going to the ER all the time. Like, there's no reason for it. And, you know, what they discovered is there is a reason for it, is that these businesses should be great, but they suck <laughs> because you have a chief medical officer trying to be an entrepreneur. You have no digital systems to actually streamline the end to end experience. Like, it is a giant clusterfuck in the exact same way of like really just look back a decade ago in, or maybe even at this point, more than a decade in marketing. We're like, okay, we want to we wanna do some marketing. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean? It's like, okay, run a bunch of reports, get some data, get some email addresses, do some stuff, send some stuff. We'll put this in this system. Three weeks later, we emailed our customers and like we think. Think about how easy all of that stuff is now. So I sort of look at, at healthcare as this massive opportunity for that same pattern to happen. So I'm using that same enterprise software investment part of my brain. What I have gotten good at through... You know, CSATs and some other investments is understanding and, and MD metrics as well, which is a, a recent portfolio company, just how hard it is to sell, you know, into hospitals, into hospital systems and what that looks like. But you know what? In some ways, it's not that much different than it was selling large enterprise contracts, you know, five, 10 years ago when you're fighting with IT, you're fighting with this person, you're fighting with this person. And so I really just try to pattern match those opportunities to say, what are those areas that are in that very specific moment in time that now is is right? So I'll, let's mm -hmm. use MD metrics, which was one that, that you didn't list. Sure. But so what, what they do is they will look at all of the data inside of a hospital to make recommendations for better care. So, you know, that business wouldn't have been possible before the data was collected, but now the hard work has been done to at least centralize data in terms of, you know, when did this person arrive? What type of care did they get? What doctor did they see? What are this? And you can suddenly, now that, that data exists, see really interesting things about how come this doctor is getting people out this much faster with wildly different care? How come this hospital is using so much more anesthesia than this other hospital? How come, and like those opportunities are really like, if you think about it, it's no different than the innovation of the CRM. Let's centralize all of our customer data and now let's build all these platforms on top of it. So for BraveCare, it was, you can use software to streamline end-to-end -end experience that can actually make you know child urgent and primary care a highly profitable business. For Galileo Health, how can you use telemedicine and insurance innovation to offer a different type of care? Because like candidly, they're going after a younger population who doesn't have a primary anyway. And there's too much friction for that to happen. And then you look at MD metrics and it's, you're sitting in a moment in time where like, why is there no Tableau for hospitals? If you look at all these investments, none of them are like this company has come up with a novel treatment. Like it's not doing it, but these are software companies in healthcare and, and, we, and we love that. And what is your concept around investing in highly skilled professionals? So in my last company, when we started, we had two medical doctors and one lawyer as the founding team. Um, and we frequently heard that we are overeducated. What is your take on investing in overeducated founders like physicians? Do you think there are some risks or only advantages? There's definitely not only advantages. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a couple things. I, I've seen it work. You know, what, one is that when you are amazing at one thing, which most of these folks are, you have what I refer to as expertitis. You can think that because you're amazing at this, you're amazing at everything. And building a startup means sort of being dumb. Like you're making a bad decision starting a company. Like, and big companies start off looking stupid and making lots of mistakes. And so it takes a, an interesting person to have the 
I'd say lack of ego and humility to go through all of the mistakes required in starting a successful company once they've already been really successful. And, you know, second time, third time founders, they at least have good pattern recognition to know what corners to not go around. But just because you're a wildly successful lawyer or doctor doesn't mean like, look, this stuff is not harder than what you're good at. It's just different. And do you have the humility to make those mistakes and learn? And that's where it gets hard because what I find with those companies where they fail is they just don't do shit. Like they're way too slow. They're way too thoughtful. And because they never execute, they never learn what they should really be doing. But then the flip side is we have some companies where the founder is just right. Like they came out of that industry and they know this innovation needs to happen and they were right. And so what I would say to summarize that is that I think it works when the product that finds product market fit is not dramatically different than the initial idea. When it's dramatically different, I think it uniformly fails because that person and that group of individuals struggles to go on that stupid journey to product market fit. <laughs> That's a really interesting view. And my last question is about your recent inspirations. Is there anything our listeners should read or see? Any books, any Substack articles? Having a kid, I candidly don't have nearly as much. Like, I have literally been reading this book called Debt for the past like year, which is a super fascinating book, but I read like one chapter every two weeks and I hate myself for it. But what I do find myself reading a ton of, especially right now, is a, a blog called Epsilon Theory, which sort of maps to my sort of pragmatic centrist view of the world, which right now is very frustrated given how polarized we are um, to both sides. And for me always is just like a very cathartic take on how absurd our financial markets are, how absurd our politics are. And what I like about it, right, is I think I get exhausted trying to find innovation in solutions. And this just helps me open my mind and just see all the things that are broken, which somehow gets helps me get through the day rather than providing like concrete solutions. So I'd recommend Epsilon Theory for folks that have never read it. Aviel, thank you for joining today. It was a really great conversation. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.